Well, good morning, church. It's a, it's a delight to be with you guys. I, I love Matt and Tim and Zach. Grateful for your church uh, every so often. It's just a, it's a privilege for me to get to worship with you guys. I've visited here with my family, been here to preach once before, and was a joy to be back with you guys. I love uh, to hear sort of the sporadic meetings I have with Matt uh, and inter- interfaces with Tim and, and Zach, getting to hear what God is doing, how he's working in your church. And uh, it's just a, a tremendous joy for me to see the work of Christ uh, in his bride and, and locally expressed in his people here. And so grateful for you guys. It's a thrill to be able to be with you worshiping this morning. Um, as, as Zach mentioned, I work for a ministry called Downline. We provide a nine-month Bible and discipleship training institute in partnership with local churches. So uh, helpful for folks to have some context. Sometimes they hear that word and they think like, uh, you know, we, do, we run like a multi-level marketing, uh, you know, business. It's not that. Uh, we run a nine-month Bible training institute. And so what we do is really come alongside local churches to provide what is a nine-month training academy oriented at two things. What does it mean to make disciples and how do I do it? Then we want to march through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation to learn the scriptures in such a way that I can understand it and teach it to somebody else. And so Downline has been uh, in existence for almost 20 years after it was started in Memphis, Tennessee uh, in 2006. And then my wife and I, we've, uh, we've seen several others planted. My wife and I moved up here from Little Rock about two years ago to establish an institute here in Northwest Arkansas. And so it's been our joy to be in the area, have loved getting an interface with different pastors and churches, Living Hope, uh, certainly one of, one of my favorites, don't tell anybody. Uh, but it's, it's been a joy to be able to interface with churches in the area and see, uh, see the Lord's work here uh, and be able to participate in that work in, in, uh, in partnership with churches. So with that being said, what I want to talk about this morning is uh, really beginning to end of the Bible to do a little bit of a, a sort of cursory survey uh, of Genesis to Revelation to look at God's heart for mission. Doing something a little different rather than sort of focusing our, our eyes on one text this morning. I want to sort of do a flyover, a biblical narrative uh, to highlight a few things for you to see thematically God's heart Uh, for mission from beginning to end. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God's intent is clear. Uh, And his intent, as we will see in Genesis 1, uh, in sort of the origin of of all things, uh, is to multiply worshipers who bear his image to extend his reign and his glory over all the earth. Okay, Uh, So what you see from cover to cover in your Bible, were you to read it, Uh, in one sitting, you would see God's heart to multiply worshipers from creation to new creation. So as you open up to the creation of the world in Genesis 1, you see God's heart to multiply worshipers, and that's carried forward all the way through the narrative of your Bible. So if you will, open up in Genesis 1, uh, and we'll begin there, as well as looking at a handful of other texts this morning. So open up to Genesis 1 in your Bible if you're not there already. Let me pray for our time again, and we will jump into the text. Father, we're grateful for uh, your word. We're grateful for a chance to gather together this morning. Grateful for this church, uh, the ways that you are moving and working uh, in terms of the growth that you're doing in people's hearts and minds, uh, but also, Lord, the, the outward movement, the ways that you're growing your church, the ways that you are bringing more people to a saving faith in Christ, uh, to see those people matured in the faith and sent out to live on mission for you in the world. We just ask your blessing over our time this morning. Would you uh, make your word clear to us by your spirit? We know that without the illumination of your spirit, without his work in our minds and hearts, we will not understand the Bible. And so uh, we are just dependent on you this morning and dependent on your spirit. 
uh, to illuminate your word. And so we ask all these things trusting that you will do it uh, and that your spirit will, will do the work of uh, applying the scriptures to our lives in the coming weeks and months as well. We're grateful for your grace to us in Christ, uh, that you are kind and faithful, uh, even when we are faithless. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we open up in Genesis 1, uh, and sometimes this is lost on us a little bit, but uh, you find what is a pretty shocking creation account. So if you were to open up in Genesis 1 and 2 and read the creation account, especially as you read it in contrast to sort of ancient Near Eastern accounts uh, in the, in the, the uh, t- similar times, what you would have found around ancient Israel, what you find is a pretty contrasted creation account. So when you read Genesis 1 and 2, were you to read it as an ancient Israelite, you would have been surprised because of the ways that it contrasts with the creation accounts of other ancient Near Eastern cultures that surrounded Israel, okay? So there were certain themes that came up over and over and over again in the creation accounts of surrounding cultures, things like the gods struggling to create the world, uh, the the gods battling against other created forces, uh, the the gods bringing humanity into the picture in order to do the sort of blue-collar work that was beneath the gods. So, Things like farming and sustaining the world. The, many of the gods of sort of these competing cultures against Israel found that to be beneath them. So they created humanity in order to do that on their behalf. The biblical account presents the opposite. So, so many of these themes that you see from other ancient Near Eastern accounts, that the biblical creation account presents almost a polemic or an argument against it, that the one true God uh, is unlike the gods, uh, the sort of claimed gods of these other cultures. So, Uh, In the ancient Near Eastern accounts, you might have seen the gods struggling to create the world, having to sort of battle through these these adversaries. And the God that you meet in Genesis 1 and 2 creates the world by the power of his word. He doesn't have to work or struggle against anything at all. He simply speaks, and the world comes into existence, right? Uh, The the God of the Bible does not create humanity uh, to, to do the work that is beneath him, but to join God in doing the same sort of work that God does. God creates the world, and he places man in the garden to work it and to keep it. In other words, to sort of reflect and, and carry on the work that God began in creation. Okay, so, so you see something of God's intent to sort of communicate, I'm very different than the gods that you've heard about in these other cultures. I'm contrasted sharply against them, and the one true God operates in a very different form. The biblical account, in many ways, is just the opposite. God, he isn't just a regional God, like the gods of these other cultures. He isn't just a, a sort of provincial God over a particular place. He's God over the entire world. Genesis 1 and 2 communicates that Yahweh is the universal deity. He is the sovereign king over all that exists, not just Israel, but over all cultures, over all nations. And so you see this in Genesis 1 and 2 as God creates the world. Not only that, but when God brings humanity into the picture at the pinnacle of his creation, the the climax of his creative work, he creates Adam and Eve and he places them in the garden. The sixth day of creation, he creates Adam and Eve. And I want to read this to you, Genesis 1:26. if you'll look there with me. This is on the sixth day. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We find here in the creation account of Adam and Eve uh, the uniqueness of men and women. That that we, uh, men and women, humanity, unlike anything else in creation, are made in God's image. That sets humanity apart from everything else God's created. We're made in his image. And it would be too much for us this morning to discuss sort of exhaustively what the image of God is. Uh, But as I understand it, the image of God is is both something in who we are uh, and something in what we're called to do. To put it simply, to be created in God's image relates both to who we are and to what we do. To be created in God's image relates both to who we are and to what we do. So our capacity for morality, our, our ability to comprehend right and wrong, uh, to be in relationship with others sort of intimately, uh, to communicate with each other in these really incredibly complex ways, all of these things are likely part of what it means to be created in God's image right? Uh, You don't see these things reflected in the animal kingdom. They're reflected in humanity in a unique way, and so we're created in God's image, reflecting something of his his character and and competency in terms of relationship and morality and communication. Those things are all true, but I want to focus your attention more on what I would call the, the functional side of the image. When we talk about the image of God, part of what we're talking about is God's calling, God's intent for humanity, the thing which immediately follows the declaration of, the, of making men in God's image is a job. So what, what you see in verse 27, God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What comes immediately after that? God blesses them, and, he, and then he says to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the thing which immediately follows the declaration of of man being created in God's image is a job, is a duty, right? It's a calling from the creator. He tells Adam and Eve that they're supposed to have dominion over the creation. Uh, Verse 28 is what some theologians have come to call the cultural mandate. I've called it the cultural mandate. This this idea that men men and women are supposed to exercise this sort of God-given authority over the created world. They're supposed to cultivate the created world for God's purposes, right? They're supposed to take the sort of raw materials of creation and make it better, improve it, make it habitable for, uh, for more people. This, this idea that we're supposed to take the world that God created and we're supposed to refine it and, and, and improve it, right? Uh, God doesn't create the world as sort of a completed product. He creates it with the ability to sort of cultivate it in an ongoing way. But it's critical to see here that God's intent was not just a material one. So God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, right? When he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, he puts Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. He has a spiritual concern and not only a material one. God has a spiritual concern and not only a material one. In the ancient Near East, it was common practice for kings uh, in that time to place statues of themselves or images, you might say, throughout their kingdoms. So, or perhaps the distant reaches of their kingdom. So you would have a king who ruled over a vast kingdom, and obviously that king, being you know, uh, subject to human limitations, couldn't be all places at once. And so it was common practice for that king in certain distant reaches of his kingdom pl- to place statues of himself or images. And in doing that, he would be saying or signifying, uh, this place is under my rule. I'm king here. 
Right? He would be communicating to the, to the people who were subject in this kingdom. Though the king was not physical or visible there, he was communicating in the statue, my, my rule and reign is still represented here. I'm still king in this region. That's precisely God's intent for humanity in creating us in his image. When God creates men and women in his image and places us in the creation, he's, he's, he's meaning for us to say, even though God is not visibly present here uh, for the created world, I'm placing, I'm placing my creation, I'm placing men and women made in my image within my kingdom to represent my rule and communicate to the watching world that I, I'm reigning, I'm in charge here, this is my world. That's the functional side of God's image in humanity, that in bearing his image, we are supposed to reflect something of God's likeness and his glory. God places men and women on the earth as his representatives. We bear his image and we're supposed to represent his presence and his rule on the earth. And so when God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, he wants them to multiply image bearers. He wants them to multiply image bearers. Why? Because he wants Adam and Eve to multiply men and women who will reflect him in his character, who will worship him and bring him glory by representing his rule. Okay, so John Piper summarizes this idea when he says, God's intent for Adam and Eve uh, is not simply to fill the earth with warm bodies, but that they fill it with worshipers. Okay, when, when God says be fruitful and multiply, he doesn't just want lots of babies for babies' sake. He wants babies for worshiping's sake, right? He wants them to multiply worshipers. So God is telling Adam and Eve, I want you to bear my image, to worship me, to glorify me, but I don't just want you to do it here in the garden, I want you to multiply. I want you to spread out over all the earth. I want you to, uh, I want my glory, I want worshipers of that glory of, of, of me and my person to fill the earth. I had a seminary professor that, that put it this way, that God wanted Adam and Eve to multiply and spread in such a way that everything that was not yet garden would become garden, right? So God places Adam and Eve in the garden and, and his presence is there in a special way with Adam and Eve. And he wants them to multiply so that his presence and his, his rule reflected in Adam and Eve's being, being born and made in his image is, is spread over all the earth so that what is not yet garden becomes garden. His rule and his glory is spread over all the earth. Greg Beal, who's a theologian, a uh, New Testament scholar, uh, suggests the same idea. You can put that quote up here. He says, we can speak of Genesis 1.28 as the first great commission that was repeatedly applied to humanity. The commission was to bless the earth, and part of the essence of this blessing was God's salvific presence. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were to produce offspring who would fill the earth with God's glory, being reflected from each of them in the image of God. After the fall, a remnant created by God in his restored image were to go out and spread God's glorious presence among the rest of darkened humanity. This witness was to continue until the entire world would be filled with the divine glory. Do you see it there? From the creation of Adam and Eve, God had a mission. He had a job for them to multiply worshipers. That was God's intent. As Greg Beale says, though, this job doesn't disappear with the fall. This job doesn't uh, sort of vanish at the introduction of sin into the world. It doesn't even vanish with the death of Adam and Eve. 
But God reiterates this mission time and time and time again. Time would uh, evade us to go through all of the Old Testament examples, but Genesis 9, uh, God blesses Noah after the flood, preserving his life in the ark. He blesses Noah and his sons, and he reiterates the commission, and he tells them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. In Genesis 12, God blesses Abraham, promises to make him a great nation, which is another way of saying multiplying him and his offspring. And not only that, but that God's blessing is not supposed to remain with Abraham, but it's actually supposed to, Abraham is supposed to be a conduit of that blessing, that through Abraham, his blessing, this divine blessing is supposed to spread to all the nations of the world. In Genesis 26, God promises the same blessing to Isaac, that he will multiply him and see this blessing spread to all nations. In Genesis 28 and 35, God promises this blessing to Jacob as well, commanding him to be fruitful and multiply. And so you see this recurring over and over and over again throughout the patriarchs. Not only that, though, you see this reiterated to the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses is making this charge to Israel, uh, and he tells the people that God will bless them and multiply them. This idea of blessing, multiplication, fruitfulness, these themes and ways that are tied together recur over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. The spread of God's glory and the blessing, the divine blessing being spread throughout the earth, they come up over and over and over again. And the reason this is important, guys, is because there are, uh, there are some Christians, uh, and there's sort of a, this, uh, this idea that pervades in some circles that mission or outward witness is a New Testament thing. It's this idea that some Christians have that, that outward witness in the New Testament is a, is a New Testament thing, not an Old Testament thing. And then in the Old Testament, the focus was just on the nation of Israel. Guys, that... Nothing could be further from the truth. When you read your Old Testament, you find this emphasis on outward-looking mission over and over and over again. And even in those most significant moments in Israel's history uh, where, where something remarkable is happening in the nation of Israel, even in those moments, there's a focus on outward witness. Turn with me to 1 Kings 8. If you'll flip over there, it's some number of pages past the book of Genesis. 1 Kings 8. So Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 has just finished building the temple. You guys will remember that uh, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, and the Lord told him, you won't build it, but uh, your son will build it. Uh, and so the, the temple is this, this remarkable sort of culmination of the, of the sort of representation of worship and the practice of worship for Old Testament Israel. And Solomon has completed the temple, which was, again, this remarkable moment in the history of Israel. And you read the descriptions of the temple, it was a pretty elaborate deal, right? They, they spared no expense. I mean, it was, it was a pretty, pretty significant thing that they did. And so they build the temple, and they bring the ark, which was this significant representation of God's presence with his people in the Old Testament. So they bring the ark into the temple, and then Solomon prays this pretty lengthy prayer of dedication. So if you look there in verse 22, the, the prayer begins in verse 22, but I want to pick up this in verse 27. So Solomon is praying to dedicate the temple, and he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. 
Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to my cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant Solomon offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when you pray toward this place, and listen in heaven in your dwelling place when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing this conduct on his, on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. This is about what you would expect, right? Uh, this, is, this is a pretty wonderful prayer, but a pretty vanilla uh, prayer as you would anticipate Solomon praying God's blessing upon the nation of Israel, that he's, he's pleading Israel's case before God, that when they pray, when they repent, that God would hear their prayers and, and listen to their requests, about what you would anticipate. What's shocking, though, is if you continue down, look in verse 41. <laughs> Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes, that is the foreigner, and prays toward his house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. I find that remarkable. In the middle of Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple, which is, again, this pinnacle of worship for the nation of Israel, Solomon prays not only for the privileged position of the nation of Israel, that God would bless them, that God would hear their prayers, that God would forgive them when they call, but that he prays essentially that same thing for foreigners. That he says, when a, when a foreigner will come to your net, when they will hear of your great name, when, they will keep, when, when the outward testimony of Israel will reach them, and they will hear something of your great name and your works for Israel, they'll come to the temple, and they will make a plea to you, and they will present the request to you. And Solomon doesn't say, smite them at that point. He says, no, hear their prayer, that they may know you that they may know your name and fear you in the same way that your people Israel do. That's a remarkable thing. When God blesses his people from cover to cover in the Bible, Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22, when God blesses his people, he always anticipates that they will not only be a recipient, but a conduit of that blessing to others. Always. God's blessing is never meant to be received by us and then stop. God's blessing is always meant to be received by us and passed on to others. 
I, uh, when I was in high school, I was not walking with Christ. I'd grown up in the church, but it was, uh, it, it was uh, not an Orthodox church, so I hadn't heard the gospel. I didn't know Christ. Uh, would have said I was a Christian, but I had no meaningful concept of what that was. I was lost as a goose. And I met some, some college guys who were you know, three, four, five years older, older than me, and uh, these guys had taken an interest uh, in some high school guys and were leading a Bible study for them. And uh, and there was one of these guys in particular who, I, I, man, I was just a, I was sure I was a young punk, probably super annoying to hang out with, uh, and I just wanted to argue with this guy, and uh, I just, I thought I knew everything. And this guy, uh, in spite of, you know, every opportunity to sort of kick me off to the side and do things that I'm sure would have been much more entertaining to him as a, as a, as a young college guy living on campus and uh, trying to enjoy his college years, sports, intramurals, whatever else, uh, he took the time. He took the time to invite me into his life, to invest in me, to model for me the life of Christ, what it looked like to follow Jesus, to patiently walk me through the scriptures, to show me where I had uh, been in error, believing um, things that were simply untrue. He invited me into uh, the, the things that he was invested in and, and doing in his own life, things he was excited about, things that God was teaching him in his own walk. And as, I, as I've reflected back on that over the years, I've often thought to myself, how many other things he could have been doing, uh, how many times he could have uh, sort of cast me off to the side and found things that were more entertaining or more interesting or more compelling to him at that particular moment. But because he had a burden for the lost and a burden for God's glory, he was compelled to continue reaching out, to continue investing, to continue sharing his life with me. And Friends, almost 20 years later now, uh, my wife and I, we have four children uh, and, and been walking with Christ now for almost two decades. My life is remarkably different, both in the here and now and also uh, in eternity when I will meet Christ face to face. Those things will go very differently now for me than they would have had that guy not taken an interest in my life. Why, why did he do that? Why was he compelled to persist in that work? Well, because he was burdened for God's glory, burdened for the lost, burdened to see the worship of God multiplied in the lives of other people. This is the same burden that you see reiterated over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. The problem, though, uh, that continues to emerge is that while God's intent is for his people to worship him and to multiply worshipers, so that his glory and his rule are spread over all the earth, they pretty much keep failing at it, right? Uh, Adam and Eve, the patriarchs, the nation of Israel, none of them quite get this deal right. Uh, you, you see them continue to sort of, uh, you know, backstep their way into sin and rebellion. And so you get these promises and prophecies in the Old Testament where they point forward to a day where this thing will actually come to fruition, where God's plans and promises and prophecies uh, for this multiplication of worship, for uh, his people to walk closely with him, and for his glory to sort of all the earth, where, where these things will finally come to fruition in the way that God intended them to. Jeremiah 3, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. Verse 15, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, does that sound familiar to you? In those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. 
At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it. To the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, they shall no more stubbornly follow their own heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. As it turns out, this future day that Jeremiah describes, uh, it will dawn in Christ. Right? This, this future day that looks toward the fulfillment of all of God's promises will dawn in Christ. When you turn to Matthew 1, you find the arrival of God's Son, who will finally fulfill in himself what the scriptures had called for and promised. God wanted humanity who bear his image to represent his rule and his character multiplying outward over all the earth. And yet humanity rebels against God. And even for Israel, they, they fail repeatedly to do what God has called them to do. And so Jesus comes as the full expression of God's presence and glory since he is God himself. He comes as the full expression of God's glory and character made visible and tangible as he takes on human flesh. Paul refers to Jesus as the perfect image of God, unstained by sin, the light of the world. And upon reconciling the world to himself, he then tells these 12 young men who had devoted their life to him to go and make disciples of all nations. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he brings the 12 to a mountain uh, to this, this appointment that he had set with them before his death. He had told them, after this all goes down, meet me here. And he brings these 12 young men after, after all of these remarkable events had happened. And he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." commands them to go and make disciples, gives this commission to his followers. And, you know, when we think about making disciples, certainly you might think about that in the same category as multiplying worshipers, right? The disciples are followers and learners of Jesus Christ who have yielded their life to him in baptism. You are committing, you're making this public expression of your faith in Christ, committing to live for him, worship him, follow him. So he tells them, go and make disciples, multiply worship of me throughout where? All nations, all nations. And obviously here in Matthew 28, when he says nations, he's not referring to modern nation states. He's referring to people groups, right? He says all nations referencing every ethnic group. Jesus wants each one of his followers to take up the mantle of the Great Commission to create disciples that will multiply outward, covering every people group that exists all over the globe. Do you see it? This desire to see the worship of God, the spread of his glory over all the earth, is the same one expressed by God in Genesis 1. It's the same one. It's the same desire. Now, in the time after Jesus' death and resurrection, this multiplying of worshipers is achieved through the gospel message. Each one of us now has been entrusted with the gospel message as an ambassador of Christ, and he, he sends each one of us out, regardless of our career, regardless of where we find ourselves living at the time, he sends each of us out with this message that we might go forth to see the lost saved, to see the saved matured in Christ, living on mission for him. 
This call to make disciples of all nations, this is the mission of the church. This is the mission of the church. There are many things churches do, many important things that churches do, uh, but we have one mission, and that's to make disciples of all nations. And this is a mission which is really just an extension of God's heart to fill the earth with worshipers from the first chapter of your Bible. What I want to put forward to you this morning as we finish up here is that so often in Christianity, in the West today in particular, there is this pervasive notion that living on mission for Christ is in a different category than most of the other commands in the Bible. Right? We think of obedience to God primarily in terms of his ethical commands. When we think of obeying God, we think primarily of things like not lying, not stealing, not committing adultery, loving one another, forgiving one another. Yes and amen, all of those things are true. And yet, make disciples, and you will be my witnesses, and go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. These commands often end up in a different category in our minds than the ethical commands of Scripture. Friends, we have to recover the biblical vision and urgency for mission. We need to recover it in a way that applies to every single Christian and not just the ones that move cross-culturally or that take on pastoring as a vocation. When Jesus says, go and make disciples, he isn't only saying that to individuals who become pastors and missionaries. He's saying it to every single one of us. And that's why this morning I wanted to briefly connect the dots through the Old and New Testament to convey how all-encompassing this is, right? From cover to cover. It's at the very center of God's heart for his people. The idea of a Christian who is disengaged from mission is entirely foreign to the message of the Bible. The idea of a Christian who is disengaged from mission is utterly foreign to the message of the Bible. From cover to cover, the biblical message, the, the Christian faith, has a missional shape. What does this mean for you and I? As we close up here, what does this mean for you and I? Well, it means that we want to be faithful. If we want to be faithful, we have to participate in the Great Commission. That's what it means for you and I. We have to participate in the Great Commission. And there are certainly cross-cultural missions implications in that. And perhaps there are some in this room who God might compel to move cross-culturally, and and we, we should celebrate that, right? But even if you are not one of those, it still has implications for you and I as well. In Downline, we we say that disciple-making is about truth and life. Uh, The idea of making a disciple involves uh, both the, the, the teaching of truth from God's Word and the modeling of life where someone's able to see the the life of Christ uh, in you lived out practically. You look at the ministry and life of Jesus and you see that he both taught truth to the disciples in in a systematic and formal way And he also modeled for them the truth, uh, that he modeled that truth for them in sort of his day-to-day life. He invited them to follow him, to be with him. 
Jesus was burdened to see a genuine faith in, born in the disciples and to see that faith mature. So he provided them both instruction and imitation. He gave them doctrine, he gave them truth, he taught them from the scriptures, and he allowed them to see that born out in his life so they could imitate that in, in, his, in his person. You could say he taught them and he showed them. This is the same thing, friends, that you and I are called to do with our children if we have them. Uh, they've been entrusted to our care. Right? With other Christians in the church, right? perhaps there are younger believers around you who, who need your guidance and your example. With the lost who live in our neighborhoods and work in our offices. Right? And so when you read the remainder of your New Testament, you see Christians doing precisely this thing. You see them multiplying outwardly in the book of Acts, making disciples. You see examples like Paul and Timothy and the Christians in Thessalonica and in other places. You see them doing this very thing that the Bible emphasizes from cover to cover. And so friends, in, in closing, let me just say this. This is undoubtedly an obedience thing. As we think about mission and making disciples, th this is undoubtedly an, an obedience issue. Jesus has commanded it, and so we want to strive to be faithful. But friends, there's also more that we can say. There's more that we can say. Because we know where this thing is headed, don't we? We know where this thing is headed. Listen uh, to John's vision in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. For they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's garden language, right? No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, multiplying worshipers from creation to new creation. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's where this thing is headed. The glory of God, the nations yielded to God's rule, the worship of God's servants, that's where this thing is headed. The plan of God from the beginning in a garden in Genesis 1 will come to fulfillment. From the first page of your Bible to the last page, God intends to multiply worshipers who will fill the earth with his glory. From creation to new creation, this plan is unchanged. And the reason I close with that is to ask you, don't you want to stand before Jesus one day knowing that you participated with him in that plan? Friends, the Great Commission, while it is something we're called to obey, is not a burden but a blessing we've been given. It's a privilege we've been entrusted with. 
I was recently sitting across the table from a, a younger guy who's, uh, I'm pretty sure, not a believer, and sitting across the table from him, and I was uh, explaining the gospel to him for the uh, 15th time, uh, and you know, walking through this, uh, the good news of the gospel, that he can have forgiveness of sins, that God wants to change him into a whole new person from the inside out, uh, and that his life can have a defining purpose now that's bigger than himself. And as I was talking to him, uh, explaining this to him, having this conversation with this guy, I was watching his eyes kind of well up as he was thinking about uh, what this all means for him, for his life now, as he was considering the claims of Jesus. And I was just reflecting in that moment on uh, how God might use him uh, if he will come to faith, what God might do both in his life and through him how God might use our ongoing friendship and time together. And I couldn't help but think to myself in that moment, uh, what a privilege, what a privilege. Moments like that, when God brings someone into your life and you have the privilege of seeing them matured in the faith, seeing a lost person reborn, granted a new heart, forgiven of sin, granted a new purpose, in those moments, you and I are not thinking to yourself, oh, what a burden it is to have been given the Great Commission. No, our heart rejoices in those moments because we think, oh, how gracious of God to allow me to participate with him in this work of seeing people born again, faith in Christ, seeing worshipers multiplied and his glory spread. To make disciples to participate in the mission of God, it's not only our duty, it's our joy. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning for a chance to gather with God's people. We are grateful for the work that you've done in each of our hearts. Um, Lord, I, I'm certain that each one of us, just as we reflect on, on our own journey, our own past, uh, so many different stories in this room, uh, those who came to faith at a young age uh, through the, the faithful parenting uh, of, of uh, a mom and a dad. Many who came to Christ perhaps later in life uh, after, after many years of living in rebellion against you and making their own way. Uh, but for all of us, we, we in equal ways rejoice in the grace of God that you have granted to us. We rejoice in the forgiveness of sin that you have renewed us and Lord, in so many ways, even, even the wreckage we've made in our own lives, you, you, you redeem and restore so much. Uh, you've been so kind to us in that. Uh, but Lord, not only that, you have granted us a new purpose, uh, that whatever vocation you've entrusted to us, uh, that's, that could be something in pastoral work or missions work or uh, law or law enforcement uh, or blue-collar trades uh, or... Uh, being a stay-at-home mom or an electrician uh, or in retail, uh, any of the number of things that you've given us to do, Lord, you, even amidst all of that, the diversity of, of callings you place in our lives and circumstances that you've given us a job to do, you've given us a purpose, and we're grateful for that. We want to be faithful. We know that uh, it is, it's not our brilliance or even our faithfulness that accomplishes things, but your grace. And so we want to bring our faithfulness to you 
offer it to you, uh, that you might use it however you will. And at the end of the day, when we have participated in the Great Commission with you, when we have seen lost people saved, saved people matured, when we've uh, been able to participate in this work alongside you, we lay our heads on the pillow at night knowing uh, it was all grace. And so we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.